Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Canadian RegTech Association's podcast. In this episode, we'll take a deeper dive into how Canadian financial institutions can prepare for and utilize quantum computing. My name is Myron Milliadere, and I'll be your host today. By way of background, I'm a partner at Miller Thompson and have significant experience supporting companies operating in the technology, media, and telecommunications sectors. I advise on domestic and cross-border mergers and acquisitions, private equity, venture capital, and corporate finance. I regularly counsel companies utilizing cutting-edge technologies, including artificial intelligence, fintech, regtech, and blockchain. For those of you who don't know, the Canadian RegTech Association, we're a not-for-profit organization focused on solving regulatory challenges through collaborative efforts between key RegTech stakeholders, including regulated entities, technology vendors, and regulatory bodies. Now, this podcast is part two of our series on quantum computing. In part one, we discussed what quantum computing is and touched on the adoption of quantum computing by Canadian financial institutions. In this episode, we'll dig a little deeper and discuss some of the technical aspects of this technology and best practices for adoption. Joining me today are two leaders in quantum computing, Noel Ibrahim and Philippe Lafrance. Uh, starting with Noel, Noel is an industry consultant for banking and financial markets within IBM's quantum industry and technical services. Prior to joining IBM, she worked with several financial organizations in roles across stress testing, credit risks, derivative pricing, and trading and AI MML applications. She also has a PhD from Columbia University, where she studied advanced computational models of quantum systems. Next, we have Philip. Uh, Philip is the standards manager at ISARA, where he works with standards development organizations and industry groups across the globe to set requirements and guidelines for the secure implementation and application of quantum safe cryptography. And for other related areas of information security, Philip holds a master's degree in mathematics from the University of Waterloo and is currently vice chair of the ETSI Quantum Safe Cryptography Working Group. Noel, Philip, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here, Myron. Thanks for having us. That's great. And, and as mentioned, this is part two of our Quantum Podcast. And if you missed part one, please do uh, go back and listen to it. It's it's available through uh, the CRTA, CRTA's podcast uh, platform as well. So please do go back and listen to it. So I'd like to, like to start off by asking uh, what your view on general quantum awareness is within Canadian financial institutions and regulators. Uh, Noelle, we'll start with you for that. Well, I do believe that there is um, a state of awareness amongst Canadian FIs. Um, certainly um, there's interest. Um, we've been having conversations with several Canadian financial institutions um, about quantum, about um, what it takes to be quantum ready. And um, some FIs have published, um, well, not, not published work as authors, but they've published um, like media reports of their work with companies such as Xanadu on derivatives pricing, for example, Bank of Montreal and Scotiabank have something um, out there on that. And um, we've definitely seen that um, there are individuals taking initiative within these organizations to learn about quantum themselves. Um, in terms of the regulators, uh, I don't know that the regulators are as um, aware as the 
financial institutions, but there is definitely some awareness. Um, and I think that mostly has come to my attention through our interactions. Um, but uh, yes, um, we do see uh, globally, we do see some central banks showing interest in, in quantum. Um, and we have had a conversation with some Canadian regulators and central banks, um, but um, preliminary kind of stages. Okay, got it, got it. So there's there's a there's a there's an interest, there's a, an understanding of a need to 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 understand, but um, uh, it's really digging into it is is where we're at right now. Absolutely. Okay, and and Philip, what's uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think uh, Noel is uh, really largely on point here. But, um, my general feeling, my impression is that there are technical groups within the Canadian FIs who, who have a good general understanding of the quantum threat. So. Again, my bias, my perspective is coming from the security side of things, but you know, as far as I can tell, they, they do have a really good understanding of what the quantum computing threat is to cryptography. Uh, right now for them, it's really just a matter of understanding the timelines for when NIST comes out with their quantum safe algorithm standards, figuring out sort of how to integrate the quantum safety plan into the sort of broader enterprise security program. Um, and then just, uh, yeah, really just understanding what the current solution landscape is. And I really do think that Canadian FIs uh, are actively engaged with this and keeping an eye on it. But, uh, but as far as the regulators go, um, they're a little bit less incentivized to look directly at the, um, to spend a lot of time with like the crypto security side of it. They're more focused on the different dimensions of quantum risk and the quantum threat. So you look at the uh, broader economic-based risks or national security-based risks is sort of where their focus is a little bit more. But um, yeah, I'd say for sure they're on board and it's something that uh, something that's on their menu. Got it, got it. Yeah, well, no, no I, I see you've echoed uh, uh, Noel's points there too, which is, which is great to hear. Um, uh, I think we'll move into um, really the use cases. And this is, this is picking up a bit from our, our prior podcast as well, but I think we can delve into it a bit more. So um, we know there are many use cases for quantum and it can be utilized for optimization, simulations and machine learning. Those are the classic ones that are discussed. Um, Noel, could you maybe speak to some of the use cases for quantum that you're interested in? Oh, absolutely. Um, so we're interested in a variety of use cases, but sort of the three that um, kind of surface frequently are, um, for example, fraud detection um, and transaction monitoring using quantum machine learning algorithms, um, looking at portfolio uh, management using quantum optimization algorithms to better balance off risk and reward, and then um, corporate risk applications of um, quantum amplitude estimation, which is a type of quantum Monte Carlo algorithm um, that uh, can hopefully help us do bigger simulations um, in, with fewer resources and the amount of time that institutions have. Um, so those are, are kind of three, like at a high level, three use cases that we're interested in. Um, I can delve into it in more detail um, if, uh, if time permits, but uh, uh, did you want just that high level view or shall I dive into it a bit deeper? Yeah, why, why don't we dive into the one that you're most interested in? I think that would be uh, great to hear a bit more about it. Okay, well, one of the areas that we're very interested in is application to fraud detection. And this is very interesting because quantum machine learning algorithms can actually pick out more complex relationships between predictors and between predictors and outcomes than classical machine learning algorithms can. So that has been um, 
proven. Um, for example, there's an algorithm that was published recently that uses Shor's algorithm as a subroutine um, to pick out um, data that it has been actually formulated according to the discrete log problem. And um, this is just one example of a complex relationship that a quantum machine learning algorithm can pick out that looks random to a classical machine learning algorithm because it at the heart of it is essentially taking a logarithm or like factoring of a large number, which is very challenging. Um, and any sort of algorithms that use entanglement um, to create a feature map that, that maps um, classical information and i.e. classical features to a complex quantum mechanical feature space um, is very difficult for classical um, machine learning algorithms to simulate. And because we can actually use these complex feature spaces to predict or to pick out complex relationships, um, they're complementary to the classical machine learning algorithms and can pick out different types of um, transactions that are uh, that may be fraudulent or not, and hopefully um, improve um, the rate of false positives that um, institutions often come across. Um, now, whenever an institution has a false positive, um, they end up losing customers, and and uh, that that's a cost to them. Of course, if there's a false negative, that means a fraud is not caught, um, and therefore the institution has to pay for the fraud. And often the investigation, et cetera, causes the cost of fraud to be greater than the amount of the fraud itself. So institutions are always looking for ways to better predict fraud so that they can reduce false positives and false negatives and therefore their costs. And we're looking at how quantum machine learning algorithms with the complex relationships that they can pick out can actually help institutions strike a better balance. So that's just one of the many use cases that we're looking at, but it is one of the, the most interesting ones right now. That's great, Noel. No, thanks for providing so much detail on that. That's uh, it's good to actually dig into these because we're we're discussing the um, um, the ones that maybe aren't as common in the arena for quantum as well, or, or they are common uh, to certain people, but the the wider audience may not be as aware. So, no, thanks for providing that. Um, I think we'll switch gears um, and really look at another one of the uh, the, the the applications and the, the impacts we'll say of, of quantum as well on on certain areas of of, of, of operations of businesses. And uh, Philip, I'll, I'll direct this question to you: Is uh, can you maybe speak to how quantum can impact organizations, technologies, and supply chains? Yeah, uh, thank you for this uh, incredibly giant question. Um, You're more than welcome. <laughs> look, at, at the end of the day, what it boils down to is if you want to understand what the quantum computing impact is to your organization, again, coming from the security side, you really have to understand how quantum computers affect the cryptography. And then it really just logically builds out from there. Um, so please feel free to uh, cut me off if you find me rambling. But um, and, and, and Noelle hinted to this uh, before in her, her previous response. Um, there are really two quantum algorithms that pose a direct risk to cryptography. Uh, the first one is Grover's algorithm, and this targets uh, you know, symmetric key crypto systems and hash functions. So you can think of AES or the SHA-2 family of hash functions. And, and it turns out, thankfully, that Grover is actually less of a big deal than maybe we used to think it was. Um, it's said and often in uh, popular articles, something like quantum computing cuts the security of AES, again, for example, in half. Well, it turns out that's not exactly true. 
between the resources that are actually required to run the algorithm and a little bit of extra complexity baked into the algorithm that people tend to ignore for some reason, it turns out it doesn't quite cut the security in half. Now it degrades the security. Security takes a hit for sure without question, but you don't need to double your key lengths to maintain the same level of security, which is terrific. So if you're using 192 or 256 bit keys, you're, you're likely uh, good for, you know, uh, not literally forever, but you're good for a while. Uh, if you're using 128-bit keys, then you might want to consider bumping those up, but it, but it really depends on the criticality of your application. Um, but the other quantum algorithm is really a different story entirely, Shor's algorithm. Shor's algorithm targets the public key cryptosystems or asymmetric cryptosystems that we use today. So you can think of RSA encryption, RSA signatures, or something based off of elliptic curve cryptography. Now, Shor's algorithm doesn't cut the security of these things in half. It cuts the security down to nearly zero. And that means, well, it's not exactly zero. You still have to do some work, of course. But this really means that even doubling your key lengths doesn't really buy you anything. In fact, I just need to add one more stable qubit to my quantum computer, and I'm right back to uh, breaking your crypto system. So, so that's the actual algorithms for attacking cryptography. The next logical question is, OK, how does an attacker actually go and use a quantum computer and use these algorithms. Well, one of the more popular ways that people talk about are these so-called harvest and decrypt attacks. And these are where an attacker simply just copies or captures some encrypted data in transit and just puts it on a server somewhere and just stores it on a shelf. And they wait until they have the quantum computing capabilities to break that encryption. And so what this means is uh, encrypted data with long-term confidentiality requirements is at risk today, because if your encrypted data is already sitting on some malicious actor's server, then there's nothing you can do to prevent them from decrypting that once they get the, the computational abilities. So, uh, so that's how the cryptography actually breaks it. That's a way that the cryptography can be used. So once you understand that, and once you understand that cryptography is at the foundation of most of the technologies we use on a day-to-day -day basis, and then when you understand how vulnerable these algorithms are to quantum computing, large-scale stable quantum computing, well, then I think that's when you can really appreciate the scope and depth of this issue, right? So um, here are a couple example questions an organization might think to themselves once they get to this point of understanding. They say, okay, we need to update our cryptography. We have to put in new quantum-safe cryptographic algorithms. What does that mean? Well, that first means you have to know where, when, and why cryptography you use, right? You cannot uh, protect what you don't know you have. So you need to do that inventory. And it turns out that's not always a trivial question to answer. In fact, it can be significantly hard, especially for larger organizations. Okay, but wait, which algorithms are we switching to? How do I actually implement those algorithms or get the quantum safe protections into the parts of my system I need them to be? Can my current systems accommodate these algorithms? Do I need to update my uh, hardware? Do I need to update APIs to accommodate these changes? What do I do with systems that can't be upgraded? What if I lose backwards compatibility? Is that an issue? How does this affect my compliance obligations? Do I have a certificate practice statement I need to be adhering to and it doesn't uh, uh, take into account quantum safe algorithms, right? So, so that's your own systems. But now you can think about, wait, if you want your products or services to be quantum safe, and you are sourcing something uh, from suppliers or vendors in a supply chain, well, now you need to go talk to the elements of your supply chain and ask them what their plans are to make their components quantum safe as well. 
So, so these are just like some of the questions that come to mind, but fundamentally, what it really comes down to is if you understand how quantum computers can affect your cryptography, then you can logically build out from there to see what the broader organizational impacts are. That's interesting, Philip. So, so you're just to, to summarize in some ways uh, a lot of information in a in a five second blur. But it's essentially understanding the technology is first, and then and then going back and and um, almost reverse engineering to see how it impacts your current operations is is second as well. And I think yeah. you need both steps to be able to to achieve this. Well, I, I would say you, you can't really know how to fix the problem unless you know exactly why it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, we're speaking the same language here. That was uh, that was that was a really interesting uh, uh, overview of, of that piece too, as well. So thanks for sharing. Um, I think uh, I think what we can uh, what we can turn our mind to right now is, and I think this is a a great question to be discussing is is best practices for transitioning uh, an enterprise for quantum. And I know, Philip, you just touched on uh, on a bit about the uh, uh, what you need to know and, and, and how do you take those steps. But uh, I'd like to dig a bit more into that too as well and, and, str and strategy side, talent and, and culture, probably uh, are some of the bigger pieces. Um, but really, uh, Noel, maybe you can start off with, with this question. Um, what are the strategies and the bigger pieces involved? Um, I think that obviously getting quantum ready is key and um, it's um, a matter of to a, large, to a large extent getting the education and the talent um, that is needed because there is a steep learning curve. And so um, in order for organizations to be ready for when that inflection point hits when quantum actually becomes um, when when we achieve quantum advantage um, organizations really need to start today um, developing their their team. Um, understanding what the talent uh, they need is, and then also developing algorithms that will help them in their business for their specific use cases. So a lot of organizations are actually looking at um, gaining IP right now, actually, by developing algorithms that are important for them and their particular use cases that will give them competitive advantage. So I think those are the key strategic um, objectives that organizations are looking at right now. Thanks, Noel. And, and Philip, um, I'll, send, I'll ask that question to you as well as, as some of the best practices for transitioning uh, an enterprise from quantum. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, Noel's response is, is exactly on the money. Um, the number one best practice any organization can do is start now. You, you have to understand the actual uh, migration to quantum safe algorithms or even the adoption of quantum computing for certain applications that is a few steps down your roadmap. That's not the first thing you're gonna do. And regardless, I'll even say that um, whenever you think your organization has to actually implement say quantum safe protections, it really is in your best interest to start taking those steps now to sort of set yourself up and prepare yourself for an easier transition later on. And I think in the uh, previous uh, uh, quantum podcast you guys did, uh, one of the gentlemen on the call said something along the lines of the lowest, ri lowest risk move is starting now. And I absolutely love that statement. I think it really sits at the intersection of truth and beauty. Uh, the lowest risk move is starting now. And, and that's exactly right. And, and uh, there's a couple more things I would like to say about this, if you don't mind. Um, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that organizations don't need to start from scratch, right? There's always going to be a little bit of uh, tailor making your migration plan to your particular organization. But 
there, there already exists some frameworks and some high-level guides that uh, organizations can use, certainly as a starting point, as a base point. Uh, one of the ones I would, I would suggest is uh, the Etsy ETSI Quantum Safe Working Group has a report on migration strategies for quantum safe algorithms. And this is a really nice three-part framework for putting together your migration strategy. And I would also recommend the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence in the States. Uh, they're under the umbrella of NIST. Uh, they have a migration to post-quantum cryptography project going right now. And this is really a field guide playbook for migration planning. And I think it'll be an absolutely excellent resource for organizations. Uh, but with that said, um, I, I would like to list for you uh, a few things that organizations maybe should think about and start doing today. Um, number one thing, first step, is just to get that understanding. Figure out how quantum computing actually affects cryptography. Understand what the current solution landscape is, right? So that involves, of course, keeping up to date with the standards development processes, but it also involves understanding other potential solutions like hybridization, whereby you use both classic and quantum safe crypto at the same time, or uh, integrating what's called crypto agility into your systems. This is where you can switch out or update your cryptography without needlessly disrupting dependent systems. So uh, inherently, really what this means is this means you have a team or you have people in your organization who have ownership of quantum preparedness and they're taking this initiative. So after you get that basic understanding and you kind of get, your, your, uh, get the pulse of the solution landscape, the next step is to do that inventory of cryptographic assets like we talked about earlier. Again, you can't protect what you don't know you have. Uh, following that, I would say you have to understand the security dependencies throughout your system understand what the consequences are to changing your underlying cryptography, right? Because you can think, uh, if I update this algorithm, will my APIs be able to handle that? Or do I need to make further updates? Um, what else do I need to update as a consequence? What sort of policies, what sort of, um, uh, maybe you can say service level agreements or anything of that nature, right? So you have to dig through and find what changes as a consequence. And, and all of this, of course, includes, and again, as we mentioned earlier, uh, talking to the elements in your supply chain about what their plans are to migrate to quantum safety. So uh, following that, what I would say you should do is you should prioritize your crypto assets, understand the timelines for when they need quantum safe protections. And now that you understand the solution landscape, you can figure out what are these solutions that are best suited to your different assets. Really what this is in different words is this is really developing your roadmap for the actual migration. And um, I, I think it's important to stress that this doesn't need to be done all at once. This can be done piecemeal if it's done strategically, right? Which again is, is uh, part of the reason to do it now. And, and really beyond that, um, one of the most important things is just ensuring you have that sufficient executive level buy-in. Uh, this is going to be something that's uh, cross-enterprise, cross-organization, and if you'll excuse the play on words, you have to make sure the board is on board. Um, and yeah, if, I guess with that, I'll just uh, maybe put a bow on this and, and say what I said at the beginning. Uh, the best thing you can do is start doing something today. Do the prep work today and avoid a uh, chaotic and rushed migration later on. Yeah, no, got it. And I think it's, uh, in, in some ways, it's training and a culture shift is critical here within an organization of, of a realization that things need to get done. Uh, and I think one thing that you said, which was very interesting too, and, and I, I, I echo those thoughts is, it's not just your internal um, quantum readiness, it's, it's also your suppliers as well. What are they doing? What aren't they doing? And, and are they getting ready for it? Um, because if you're looking at a, 
a long-term supplier relationship, the expectation is, is they'll be as ready as you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I, I don't, uh, security is only as good as the weakest link, right? Which is common phrase. Anyone who works in security hears something like that. And this also applies to your supply chain. If you have a vulnerable link in your supply chain, well, then you're still vulnerable. And uh, that's why it's important to start doing these things today is go look at your supply chain, look beyond your organization. It, this goes back to what we said earlier. You, you can't know how to fix the problem unless you know the scope and breadth of the problem. Exactly. Well, no, those were those are some great closing words too as well, Philip. Noel, thank you both for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Myron. And hey, I want to say I've, I've listened to a bunch of the podcasts you've hosted, and I think you do a terrific job, good sir. So uh, keep doing what you're doing. And again, thank you so very much for having us here. And no problem, Phil. The, the, the check's in the mail. Uh, so thanks, uh, thanks again to our audience as well for taking the time to, to listen today. Uh, please do visit our website. Uh, you'll see our upcoming events, podcasts, and seminars. We have some great discussions about the uh, new and novel technology and, and uh, risks and interests in the reg tech world. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.